Hello and welcome to the second season of A Truth Universally Acknowledged, the podcast that celebrates women writing about women. I have to admit I'm slightly terrified about this season. The first one was made with no expectations and really is a fun lockdown project for myself, but it turns out creating something deliberate is much, much scarier. The good news, however, is that this season I've been lucky enough to interview some amazing authors and I know you're going to love hearing from them. If this is the first episode you've listened to, let me tell you how it works. I'm in the middle of writing my first fiction book and I'm asking you to hold me accountable. Each week I'll have an update for you as to how that's going and some lessons I've learned along the way. Then I'll talk to a female author who's been there and done the hard process of actually getting to the end of a book. Apparently it is possible. And finally, I'll end with a little creativity boosting exercise for any of you listening who want to bring, well, some more creativity into your daily lives. One thing before we start, if you enjoy this episode, I would absolutely love it if you could leave the podcast a five-star rating. Don't bother with three or four, just go straight for five. And a little review as well. And if you want to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening, then I would be delighted. So first up, let me give you a writing update. Well, when last season finished at the end of 2021, I was about 25,000 words into the book. So that's a quarter of a way. I was determined to spend my Christmas break writing with a fury, but I think we all know that didn't happen. And well, I've added some more words, about another 10,000 words. It's not as much as I wanted, but it's still good. I will take it. So what did I learn in this time? Well, I learned we all really need to rest. I have no more wisdom for you than that. Just rest. And if you're listening to this on a Sunday morning and simply hearing the word rest is making you let out a sigh of longing, then please take this as your sign to spend the afternoon doing whatever makes you feel rested. I will be on the sofa with a book. This week's interviewee is a bit different. The first season of this podcast focused on women writing fiction, and most of this series will do the same. But I realised, as I did last season's episode, that the thing I found the most interesting was how we as women use words to tell the stories of other women. So this week's guest has done that incredibly powerfully. Christina Patterson is a journalist and broadcaster who has been chronicling the world around her for over 30 years. Her new book, Outside the Sky is Blue, is a memoir about her life, her family and relationships. Christina has lived an extraordinary life and her book gripped me in the way you'd expect from an exemplary thriller. On the face of it, it's a book about family relationships and love. And sometimes we're too dismissive of those themes. But Christina creates a masterclass in the power and truth of them. We also talk about why we write and whether we've ever really felt successful. Just a heads up, we had what they call technical issues when recording this podcast. So we recorded it on Zoom, which sometimes means the sound isn't quite as clear as it could be. Hopefully it sounds perfect for you, but if it doesn't, my apologies. So this week on the podcast, I am absolutely delighted and kind of in awe to have the fabulous Christina Patterson. Christina, welcome to A Truth Universally Acknowledged. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to be on your podcast, Harriet. Thank you for inviting me. So I guess we should tell people listening that you and I have known each other for a while. 
and we've had lots of great chats about life and the kind of the good and the bad and the ugly of it and so I loved reading your book was that it is a book about life and you're actually the first author I've had on this podcast that is writing non-fiction this is a book about life and specifically your life and I know because of our previous chats that it took you a while to write it so can you tell me how you came to write this book about you and your family right now? Yes, I think it only took me about 20 years to go from uh, <laughs> having, from wanting to do it to actually publishing the thing. Weirdly, when I finally did sit down to write it, this version of it, it didn't take that long, actually. It was about, I'd written probably the first quarter of it uh, as a proposal. And once I had the deal and a deadline, because as a journalist, as I'm sure you'll understand, it, it's quite hard to do things without a, a proper, proper deadline and a self-imposed deadline is not a deadline. No. Um, so once I had the deadline and uh, had managed to squander a bit of the time leading up to it, I had to write it pretty fast and I did write it pretty fast. But the process in about three months, actually, but the, but the process leading up to that oh my God, it was years and years of thinking, I want to write this, I don't know how to write this, I don't know how to find the voice, I don't know how to find the structure. And in that process, in that time, everything changed. I mean, you know, unfortunately, every single member of my family died. And so obviously, by the time I did sit down to write it, it was a different story to the one I started to write. And it would take far too long to go through all the ups and downs of that pro of that process really but um I think I think one of the things with with books and particularly with non-fiction and it's the thing that I think you don't really realize until you get into the game I mean it isn't a, it isn't a game and it kind of is a game is that in terms of publishers agents all the rest of it you have to get a lot of ducks lined up and um even when you earn your living as a writer and I became a journalist a full-time journalist when I was 39 and then a full-time writer on the paper. I was at The Independent a few years later. It's still, you kind of think, oh, you know, I'm a journalist. It can't be that difficult to get a deal. But actually, it's not easy. Plenty of plenty of people try really hard to get publishing deals and it doesn't happen. And I did publish another book after I left The Independent and then this one. But I think structure is very often the, the hardest thing with nonfiction. And because I was, in effect, telling five people's stories, because it's a story of my family, my parents, my siblings and me. Obviously, I'm the main character, but there were five people's stories in the midst of it, interwoven in a way. And I just thought, oh, my God, I don't know how to. I just don't know how to do this. And I tried to not do it chronologically. And in the end, I just couldn't. I couldn't not do it chronologically because I just I just couldn't see a way to do it. So yeah, the that stuff was agonizing, but the writing itself was a pure delight. That's so interesting. You say the writing itself was a pure delight because we have to say about the book, you have had the most extraordinary life and your family had the most extraordinary life. Right? So on the kind of surface, it's a nice middle-class family living in Surrey with three children. And yeah, underneath it, there is your sister who has schizophrenia. There is your brother who is suffering from depression. You find yourself suffering from a whole host of illnesses that no one can diagnose. 
and your parents there sort of juggling everything and trying to keep their sort of I, I got a swan metaphor of you know massive mm. frank paddling and all absolutely time. right yeah my mother the swan yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you went about writing it through researching you said your mother was I think this is a fabulous description of her as an Instagrammer before Instagram in that she takes photos of everything and she keeps an amazing diary and so you have all these notes and you had to go through them I can imagine I would have imagined that process actually would have been quite traumatic oh yeah but writing it was a delight why was the writing of it a delight yeah that's a really interesting question because of course you're right that it was traumatic as well I mean obviously I knew the story before so so although it was extremely I mean some of the stuff I uncovered was very painful to read and come across the book starts with me clearing out my brother's house he died very suddenly the summer before the pandemic and it was absolutely the worst thing that ever happened to me I mean obviously it was it didn't happen to me it happened to him and it is a tragedy I can't even talk about it very much because I just want to cry but but in terms of me and and when he died I thought well I can't write that story now I, I just sort of felt for all kinds of complicated reasons that I couldn't and in fact it was his best friend, Stuart, who said to me, almost like a sort of benediction, I almost felt as if he was Tom's representative on earth. He said, it's okay, you can do it. And I, I sort of decided to get on with it. And I needed to do it because obviously it was um, a dreadful time. You know, I'd lost both my sister and my brother and both my parents and then a pandemic hit. So clearly very far from ideal. But and some of the stuff I found and, and going through Tom's house was agonizing. So all of that side of it was extremely painful. But I suppose when I say the writing was a delight, I kind of mean literally the writing was a delight because by the time I got to do the writing, I had been through the papers, which was agonizing, been through the boxes, been through the house, been through the objects, found the things I wanted to put in the book, which was, you know, given that I had four people's papers and photograph albums and mine, was just such an enormous process of kind of, of digging through archaeological layers. So by the time I was I had got the deal with the publisher, the structure was accepted, I'd written the first part of it, I felt I had the rest of it pretty much mapped out so then for me the writing is the enjoyable side of it I mean it's the, it's the kind of working out the patchwork quilt that's really difficult and it wasn't like I mean I haven't written a novel but so many writers talk about fiction as a process of uncovering and discovery and of course there were discoveries along the way but the plot was there and I love writing writing is in a way my favorite thing in the world probably is my favorite thing in the world actually which of course doesn't mean it's always easy, but there is an element of just joy, absolute joy about it. So I did love it, yeah. I wanted to ask you what is going to sound like a big philosophical question, but is I thought you might be the only person that knows the answer to it because you love to write and it's so ingrained in you and because you are a writer and because you've had a job working with so many writers. So mm. as a literary reviewer, as the head of the Poetry Society, 
you have been surrounded by writers in your career. And so my question is this, which is, why do we write? Mm. <laughs> well, that's an easy one, Harriet. <laughs> I think, I don't know if the answer or question for that matter is different depending on your art form. But I think probably artists in other art forms or people who aspire to be artists in other art forms would probably give a response along similar lines to the one I think I'm going to give, which, which is we write to express what it's like to be alive. And the process of reading or experiencing art, whether that be theatre, painting, cinema, is to feel this is what it's like to be alive and the comfort and consolation that you're not alone because other people are experiencing the same emotions, the same feelings, the same struggles. Everybody wants to love everybody and be loved. Everybody wants to find meaning in their life. Everybody feels like a failure some of the time. If my life is anything to go by most of the time, <laughs> um, I think it's wanting to kind of scratch the surface of the world before we die, I suppose. I think that's, I think that is absolutely, absolutely true and really resonates with me actually, because one of the reasons that I ask is, I've talked about this on the podcast before, I went on a writer's retreat a few months ago and I am writing a piece of fiction that I wanted, because it's been the pandemic and everything has been so dire, I wanted to write a bright, joyful, joyous piece of fiction. And I decided to start this piece of fiction by having my heroine be separated from her husband through an affair. And I submitted a kind of introductory piece to the tutors on this writer's retreat, which was the point where she discovers this affair and um, what happens next. And one of the tutors said to me, well, you've gone from her discovering it to her going straight to confronting him. Where's the, where's the emotion in this? Where's the journey? Where's the sadness? Where's the heartbreak? Where's the moment of denial? And I thought, well, that's not the fun bit. I don't want to, I don't want to write about that. That's horrible. I, I want to write about the bit where she has the great confrontation. And by the end of the week, I, I sat down and wrote that scene of that scrabbling through the drawers and trying to make sense of the little bits of information and pulling it together and making it bigger and then smaller and all of that. And I had to read it at at the final final day of this retreat you have to read the work and I read that and I sort of felt teary and choked up and horrified obviously horrified by it because it turns out reading your own work is the most horrendous thing you can ever do anyway <laughs> <laughs> but also because I felt emotionally connected to it and when I finished one of the women came over to me she said, I just wanted you to know that that I've been there too and I scrabbled through the drawers and I pulled things apart and actually there is that two sides of it which is we want to write we want to write the life, we want to write the truth of life and what it is to experience life. And we want to know that we're not alone in it. Absolutely. And also makes me think that there's the most beautiful bit in, in your book right at the end where you talk about, there's a lot of the book is about you searching for love. I think we say in some of the wrong places sometimes. <laughs> um, and finally at the end, finding love. And there's just this like beautiful acknowledgement of how nice that is. When you got to the end of that, end of writing, did you feel that you were then looking back on your life differently? 
Oh, that's so interesting. I'm not sure is the honest answer. But what I do think is that even if we write and are used to writing, I was going to say, even if we're writers, and I still don't quite feel, even though I've earned my living as a writer for a long time, I still don't, I still feel a bit nervous about calling myself a writer. Um, but I maybe a second book allows you to call yourself a writer. I'm not sure. But even if we are writers and therefore use our imagination to some extent, I, I've, as I said, written nonfiction and journalism, I think we're weirdly bad at imagining, really imagining ourselves in situations we're not in. So when you're hungry, it's quite hard to imagine being full. And when you're cold, it's quite hard to imagine being hot. And I think now I can look back on parts of my life and think, partly think in a kind of, you know, pull your socks up kind of way. Oh, for goodness sake, you know, what were you making such a fuss about? You know, it's all fine. It's all fine. I feel broadly, apart from being in the middle of an effing pandemic, which is clearly going to go on ever and ever and destroy all one's plans forever, um, it's all hunky-dory. And apart from that, I feel, you know, relatively stable and happy at this point in my life. And for a lot of my life, I wasn't. Looking back, I think I had, I have had so far a very interesting life and very interesting work. And there's been masses that's been great about it but there were a lot of very, very low times. And I think even though I wrote about them quite recently, I still find it quite hard to believe that things were as bleak or felt as bleak as they did at the time. And so, for example, I've had cancer twice. And the second time I got it, I really did feel absolutely genuinely if I die now, my life will have been a failure for all kinds of reasons. And I, I talk about those in the book. And I suppose I do think that if I got cancer now, which I really hope I don't, I wouldn't feel in the same way my life will have been a failure. And I'm not quite sure why that is. And it's not because I've finally found a bloke. This is not a Mills and Moon. <laughs> life is a bit more complicated than that. It's not that. It's something else. And maybe actually partly having kind of done the organising of pulling together the threads of my family as I see them. And obviously this is only one. It could have been done in any number of different ways, an infinite number of different ways. But I did it the way I did it. I think part of the process of art is trying to impose some kind of order on what is chaotic and having you know, almost like tidying up a vast sock drawer, having tidied up that sock drawer, which is in a way what writing the memoir was for me. I mean, it's obviously rather a banal way of putting it. I, I feel the kind of, you know, the satisfaction you get from tidying up a sock drawer. I mean, not that I ever do tidy up a sock drawer, but I imagine if one were domestically minded, you might get satisfaction from that kind of thing. You've done something quite complicated. You've, you've sorted things out in a certain order. And I feel a lot better for that. So I, so I think, broadly speaking, I think probably your question is astute. I think I probably do feel a bit differently about my life now. And I do think having written the book is, is probably a part of it. It's interesting to hear you talk about um, that idea of success and failure and how sometimes things don't really change, but we feel differently about them anyway. 
And I want to ask you about that because it's a theme that runs through the book. And there's some beautiful bits in the book where your parents talk about how actually how proud they are of you or how well you've done or that it really seen you come into your own. And all through the book, you're like, are they? Why? What's happened? Oh, ah, no. I don't see it that way. And I do think that is, I do think that is common of a lot of creative people mm. who do think, oh, no, 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 no. This, I, I thought this was going to be good, but actually now I've got here, I realise it's only a millimetre further on than I thought I was. And actually I've got miles to go. Mm. Why do we do that, do you think? And how do we move through it? Or at least how do we let it not stop us from doing things we want to do? Well, I think the second question is a slightly different question. The, the, the first question I would say, when you say, why do we do that? My, my response would be because it's a human condition, because we are just constantly on a quest. We are, I don't know, programmed, whether it's in our DNA or whatever, to want more. And so what we have in one sense is never enough. And obviously, if I were an Instagram guru, I would say you are enough and it is enough. But, you know, people don't think that way and and successful people I mean again obviously it all depends what you mean by success but people who who are hungry for something whether that be creating something good feeling something they create is never good enough they are rarely satisfied because if you were satisfied you would never try harder and you don't produce good stuff by thinking oh this is great I've written something really good I mean you know writing like anything else is an apprenticeship and I am so grateful now that I didn't try to publish my very early attempts at this memoir when I was writing bits of this and bits of that and I did actually 10 years ago write a whole kind of version of something slightly different and thank god I didn't try and get that published because it really wasn't very good and um I think if you want to be good at stuff you have to be dissatisfied with what you produce and keep trying. And nobody ever said that the creative path is one that leads to happiness. You know, if you want to be, I was going to say, if you want to be happy, you can sit around, you know, eating kettle chips and drinking wine and watching whatever films you like to watch. But the thing is, as we all know, passive consumption doesn't make you happy. What makes, what creates, generally speaking, a degree of satisfaction in most people is making an effort and the sense of achievement that comes from having done something difficult. So I think it's all gradations along the way, but I absolutely detime the second question. I absolutely do agree that the second part of it can be immobilizing. And for years and years and years, I felt uh, not only I'm not worthy, well, I'm not worthy to even try to be a writer. I mean, for me, one of the one of the consequences of working with all these, you know, sort of very successful writers was I thought, well, I can't even try then. And so I never felt allowed to even think about writing books. I I was a critic. I've been a critic for 30 years on and off. And then I was a kind of handmaiden, introducing people, hosting people, reviewing their books, interviewing them, all of which was very interesting. But I didn't really think, oh, yes, I can try that. I thought these are the gods and I am the worm and um, I am here to facilitate the gods while also huffing and puffing and feeling resentful and bitter that they were doing what I wanted to do. So I think there's very often that, that complicated mix. And I do think probably for many women, there is more of a sense of 
oh, but who am I to do this than for many men? That's a sweeping generalisation. There are plenty of men who don't have the nerve either. But I think, you know, women, we, we are culturally, we, we've been programmed to be handmaidens rather than, rather than creators. And I think that can still take a toll. When you were talking, I was reminded of um, something that Nikki May, who's a writer I interviewed earlier on uh, last season of this podcast, said and she said that actually one of the things that helped her was reading really bad books (laughs) she'd go and read a really bad book and she'd be like look see they did it and it was terrible and somebody still published them yeah I think that's really not not I I, by the way I listened to that podcast I loved it and I really want to read the book now um I think that's probably really good advice yeah it's funny isn't it when we um particularly when we love something we're doing something because we love it and we for writers particularly you were brought up reading right Mm. I think I think this is an unofficial rule you have to be a reader before you can be a writer definitely definitely. yeah and so if you were brought up admiring and adoring these things and feeling like this was your place to escape and to have a different life for even for an hour or so then that's actually quite a lot of pressure to put on yourself to create for somebody else Absolutely, yes. I know that you, like me, also love a bit of what I'm going to call respectfully hippy-dippy shit. <laughs> I was doing, doing a bit of hippy-dippy shit because I was feeling a bit sad the other day and I was you know, engaging in my how do I feel better. And um, one of the things that sort of I was doing was sort of having kind of my sad thoughts and then putting my sad thoughts and seeing where they land in my body and, you know, if I can shift them through my body. Mm. And one of those sad thoughts was, uh, I feel like I'm not imaginative enough or interesting enough. Now, obviously, I don't feel like that all the time. This is, don't worry, healthy self-esteem. But it does crop up occasionally. And when I thought about where that was in my body, it was in my right shoulder. Oh, how interesting. And I thought, gosh, no wonder I don't want to write anything right now because sitting there in a part of my body is this thing that's literally blocking between my brain and my fingers and writing it. Um, and I know in your book, you talk a lot about the mind-body connection mm. or experience of it. Tell us a little bit about that, first of all, and then how you feel about that now. Mm, very interesting. It's interesting because I don't think that is hippy-dippy shit at all most of my hippy dippy shit to use the technical term we use was probably in the past when I, I did do some you know quite weird things I did Reiki and uh, I went to a holistic holiday in on a Greek island called Skiros and um, learned to do this kind of healing called Reiki and you know I don't believe in healing I don't believe in that stuff but it worked weirdly no idea why it worked um, and if you, I think if you Google it, Google Reiki, it comes up as a kind of official definition. It's used as a kind of classic example of a pseudo, a pseudoscience or something. I, I don't know. Anyway, it's all very weird. But in terms of the mind-body connection, I don't think there's anything weird about that. Though, though I certainly felt there was when I, in the years when I was going through it, because people, I think there's been a real divide and still is in many ways between traditional medicine, which is, you know, very much about you go to the doctor, the doctor gives you pills to make you better. It is irrelevant what's going on in your head. You, you've got your, your mind on the one hand and your body on the other hand, and neither twain shall meet. 
And for me, I mean, I just kept getting ill. One thing after another, I had terrible acne in my teens and early 20s, and which was truly traumatic. And I felt as if my shame and pain was written all over my face and saw endless doctors, dermatologists, couldn't get rid of it for ages. And, um, and then I developed this, these mysterious pains in my ankles that spread up to my knees. And I was literally, I mean, crippled is an old fashioned word that, you know, nobody would use nowadays, but it is how I felt at the time. I couldn't walk without pain. I couldn't stand without pain. Uh, it was a, and this was in my mid twenties. It was a terrible time. I was miserable. And then I got a diagnosis of uh, what was then regarded as an incurable autoimmune disease. So that didn't exactly cheer me up. But it took me a long time. And this is one of the things that emerges in the book to realize and, and, and quite a lot of therapy to realize that it's how I carry my distress. My, as, you, as you said earlier, my sister had schizophrenia and my brother had depression I mean I don't want to sort of over egg that because he you know he was a perfectly functional person but he did suffer from anxiety at times and depression at times probably quite low grade mostly but it was there and I I would never say that I suffered from depression I don't think I did but I have been very 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 unhappy to the point at times when I didn't think I wanted to be alive anymore. I think if you carry around that amount of pain, it surfaces somewhere. And I think, I think I probably felt a pressure to be the kind of well, cheerful one because, you know, because my poor parents had this sort of, you know, again, to use a technical term, a kind of shit show going on in the family. And, you know, I've got to be the kind of smiley one, but then that doesn't really work when you're immobilizing physical pain and then as happened you know unemployed and so on so I think I gradually learned that I think if you don't express your pain somehow or other it will come out in one way or another and I think the way it came out for me was in my body. Do you think now that actually writing and kind of come I guess full circle to where we started but writing this book where, as you said, the writing of it was a delight. But it's a painful book. It's a book about a lot of pain. I wonder if that is, if this is the sort of physical form, the book is the physical form of that understanding. That actually, one has to express the pain. Quite, quite possibly. But I hope it's not just a painful book because there is a lot of joy in it as well. And ultimately, and maybe this is the biggest shift that's happened in my life, is I just love being alive. I just think it's unbelievably interesting. It's just fascinating. And, and I hope in one sense, I think that joy kind of bursts through the book, I hope, but also I don't know. I think I actually I think in a way it was always there. They when I was a small child I was called the sunshine girl because I was always smiling. And again, who knows if these things are personality or, or what, you know, one could construct an argument that I was the sunshine girl and then, you know, lots of things went wrong in the family. And then I was 
definitely not the Sunshine Girl. And maybe something of the Sunshine Girl has re-emerged quite a lot later and maybe parts of the Sunshine Girl were always there. I really don't know. But um, but I think your point about sort of expressing in the book. Yeah, I think I think that was a delight in a way. I, I wouldn't say it was there was probably partly a process of catharsis, but I'm wary of saying of talking about writing as catharsis because catharsis is kind of splurging on a page and and obviously a book is meant to be something that's crafted you know it's not for you it's for the people who read it in a sense I mean it's prime you know it's initially it's for you but then it's for other people so um yeah I think there was an element of carrying that pain but I do think the other thing about writing as in all art is that if it's done well or reasonably well there's a process of alchemy where the pain which everybody experiences in different forms is turned into something that one hopes is beautiful or at least creates a a pleasant or enjoyable or satisfying experience for the person who reads it or if it's a play watches it or sees it if it's a painting. I mean I do think the book is incredibly beautiful and actually when you said there about the kind of joy within it there's something well a it comes out on all the pages, but particularly in the title, right? That the title is mm. that size blue. So it's a, already a kind of a joyful title. But there's also, when I was reading it, it was really, it was a funny thing that I noticed, which was I was reading it and there's some bits where obviously I know you. So I was reading about your life story and I was reading things. Oh, but, oh my friend Christina, I don't want her to be going through that at all. Oh. Um, but I'm going to be honest, I wasn't crying at that point. <laughs> I was like, and then I get to the end, which is like really joyful and beautiful and happy. And there's like um, absolute pot of gold. And, um, and I had a good old cry. And I, like, and I think it is that beautiful thing, which is the ability to, as you say, craft an experience and to put that life experience on the page so that someone can experience it themselves and feel it and live it but without perhaps because it's been so beautiful and it is beautiful so beautifully written there's a lightness and a, an ability to keep going with it which is just really it was really beautiful to read oh that is such an incredibly lovely thing to say Harriet <laughs> I'm really I'm really touched really touched by that really touched and you know I suppose I remember um, a dear friend who very sadly died of cancer last summer he was very keen on cocktails and so am I and we went out for cocktails a few times and once we were talking about he was in the corporate world he ran his own company and and he was saying I can't remember exactly how it came to it he sort of said well what what do you care about and I just heard myself saying beauty and truth (laughs) and I thought what are you Keats you know and I keep I keep thinking of them for me it's almost the nearest I get to a prayer these days Ode on a Grecian urn, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. And when the chips are down for me, that's it, really. It's beauty and truth. Those love obviously is in there and kindness and any number of other things. But if I had to really choose, I'd say beauty and truth. And beauty really matters to me in whatever form you find it. You know, it could be a book, it could be a flower, it could be a lovely glass of wine, whatever. But it is it is that thing that lifts life from the everyday into something that that feels precious 
Oh, it's such a life-affirming book and talking to you is always life-affirming, so thank you. Um, and also the other thing I'm going to say on the truth and beauty note that's always life-affirming is your Instagram, which honestly, during lockdown, brought me joy. Really? <laughs> yes! It was just continual pictures of sheep in beautiful fields, lovely, beautiful countryside, and kettle chips and wine. <laughs> <laughs> joyful I absolutely loved it I loved it thank you so much for talking to me and thank you so much for coming and sharing all your wisdom about writing and writers and the process but also um, fundamentally that hunt for beauty and truth thank you so much I've really loved this conversation Harriet thank you that was the lovely Christina Patterson and her new book Outside the Sky is Blue is out now Each week, I end this podcast with a little exercise for you to try if you want to bring some more creativity into your life. This week, it's one for those of you who, like me, have been hibernating in the winter months. It's a chance to get outside and reconnect with nature, or stay inside and remember nature if it's a bit cold. This is from an organisation called Cultured Forest, and it's designed to get you noticing the world around you as we move into spring. It goes like this. Take a moment to think of your favourite place in nature. Remember how you feel there. What's the temperature? Is there a breeze? What do you smell? What colours do you see? What can you hear? Now, once you have a place in mind, go create something about that place. If you're a writer, I encourage you to try writing a haiku poem. This is a poem of three lines. The first line should be five syllables, the second seven syllables, and the third five a little bit of structure to bring to your creativity. And if you're not a writer, feel free to create whatever you like, art, sculpture, interpretive dance, but maybe see if you can bring some of that haiku structure into it. I'm going to be doing this too, and I'll be sharing it on my Instagram, at Harriet Minter, so do come and share yours too. And if you do, you can tag me, and you can tag the original creators of this idea, at Cultured Forest. And if the thought of sharing your poetry online terrifies you then me too so we can be scared together that's all for this week but next week i'll be back with another brilliant author and until then please keep creating <laughs>